3: Thank you, OJs, for our standard open. We would be Dr. Wendy Dees from the University of Miami, Jason Jackson from Miami Heat, X and NBA Radio. If this is your first time stopping by, we should let you know uh, this is the place to be for all sports business discussion. It's it's niche, it's nuanced, it's ours, and Dr. Dees is so happy to be back with you to discuss this magical world of ours.
1: This is the absolute bright spot in the quarantine jacks that we get together on a weekly or bi basis and do this it is absolutely the place to be when you have no place to be
3: amen amen well apparently the place to be was the national football league this week which gets us to our first topic the nfl in unprecedented fashion had to hold their draft uh, virtually the commissioner uh wedged at his home between uh what was that? It was like New Rochelle and just north of Mount Vernon. And I'm like, look at the commission up with the people. I love it. Uh, but uh, uh, all the players in their homes around the country, all the GMs and coaches in their homes with their families. And, and it seemed as though, Wendy, that it, while it's not the way the NFL does it, it really worked out. And, and when I say it worked out, it really worked out. Historically worked out as the NFL draft. Had an all-time viewership record on night one and, uh, and also on Friday. I didn't check how things were rolling because it started a little bit earlier with a different context on Saturday. But, man, oh, man, what a boon for the NFL uh, taking uh, the baton, obviously, from the WNBA, which had its best uh, draft viewership in 16 years. Uh, the NFL, which as it does, is the alpha dog of the sports world. Uh, exploding numbers even for them.
1: They they absolutely crushed it, Jax. And I think we all knew that it was going to be big with no live sports on. But I'm not sure that I even thought it was going to be this big. Like you mentioned, you know, great job by the WNBA, and a lot of people tuned into that. And then the NFL's power move of just having all of these players connected, and having teams connected—I mean, it was a technological virtual masterpiece. And so, kudos to the NFL—they did an amazing job. And you know, not only did the ratings numbers show how popular it was, um, but Jacks, I. I kept seeing a lot of people saying that they they actually like this format better, and we can talk about this in a minute, but just to share with our listeners the, the numbers and why we're saying it's historic, Um, The headline I saw, the NFL draft shatters all-time draft viewership. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had 15.6 million viewers on night one. They actually peaked at 19.6 million viewers, almost 20 million viewers. That was up 37%. that's,
3: That's viewership for a game. Dr. D. That's, amazing. that's
1: incredible. You get 100 million people for the Super Bowl and you have <laughs> 20 million people for the draft. It was up 37% night one. And then on night two, when you typically see that dip, this just proves even more that people were wanting this, this content with nothing on to watch because uh, day two, you had 8.2 million viewers, peaked at 10 million viewers. And day two was 40% higher than last year. The entire draft, ratings-wise, was historic, like you said.
3: Yeah, and just a little over uh, one-fourth of this audience watched the best documentary of my life. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, But let's uh, talk about who's loving this situation, because uh, the Walt Disney Company, uh, the, the organization that put on this beautiful thing via ESPN, and ABC and their many digital platforms sold out their advertising. I mean, you're talking about, what, about 250 grand a pop, right, for these ads, and uh, they sold out every commercial spot they had. So not only did they get a really nice payday for this, uh, their advertisers, uh, I believe around 100, got some massive eyeballs they probably did not expect.
1: They sure did, and to put it into context, $250,000 for 30 seconds is is a good portion of what they get uh, for the Super Bowl. It's not what they're getting every year for uh, the draft, but um, 100 advertisers this year, which was more than they'd ever had. They had uh, 60 new companies, so I think that just shows people's appetite for uh, getting in on this live content Um, And they sold out all of the first uh, round very quickly um, and then sold out the rounds after that at that same price. And everything was sold out before the draft took place.
3: Uh, People were probably saying to themselves, no bleep, Jackson, Dr. D's. There's nothing else going on. That's fine. That no competition. I would still say this so far jumps beyond expectations and, and numbers that they've experienced in the past it's worthy of noting and, and something they also did they, they being the NFL is that while the teams were making their picks the league simultaneously held a draft-a-thon I should say draftathon. he said uh and it was a fundraiser to help raise money for uh relief here in the United States surrounding this virus Dr. Deese talked to us about what they were able to do here this is pretty astonishing
1: yeah, you and I talk a lot about the NFL and just what a money machine it is, and, and that's great for the NFL, and, and sometimes that's good for the players and, and the rest of the league, and sometimes that's not, and, and the NFL, you know, gets, gets a lot of flack for that. But you also have to look at the NFL in these situations where they use their massive platform for good. And they knew that everyone was going to tune in for this draft. And they raised over $100 million through Mm. draft-a-thon for coronavirus relief, um, sending a lot of that money to organizations that are going to help frontline workers, healthcare workers, um, giving chunks of that money to the Red Cross and, and, you know, other um, nonprofit organizations that are helping with relief. So for as much as the NFL rakes in money, they're going to give a lot of money back at a critical time where, you know, people, people need this money and, and not a lot of people have money to give, but they use this platform to, uh, to reach out to people and, and people gave in a really great way. And it was incredible.
3: What a wonderful connection as these young men and their families dreams are coming true to be able to impact those uh, around them that are dealing with this uh, on a daily basis from a, a personal standpoint, either suffering from it or trying to battle it. So kudos to everybody involved. Next topic, the last dance. Wendy, this is... In my wheelhouse. This is a strike right down the middle. Uh, I was fortunate enough to cover the 1997-98 Bulls once they reached the NBA Finals. And so it's a, a wonderful experience to look back and enjoy Michael Jordan and uh, these the, the second repeat uh, version of his championship teams. And uh, as we tape this, um, we've had one... Uh, set of documentaries rollout I should say episodes of the documentary and um, we're sitting on the day where the next two are coming out in this this five-week rollout of 10 episodes Uh, first of all just a glorious product and I I know that there was a little bit of a rumbling from uh, some viewers you know well well, I mean we know what's going to happen and like, yeah, you know what happened what was going to happen in World War II. Like, to me, you're going to not watch the documentary. You understand that you love jazz or baseball, but there are great documentaries on those. I think it can get lost on people that there are these wonderful nuances to the things we thought we know, that there is a veneer on most stories. And to be able to pull that back and provide us with detail, which this has done so far, and I only anticipate to do more of, uh, is what it's all about. Uh, Obviously, this is something that Bulls fans, basketball fans, Michael Jordan fans, uh, sports documentary fans have been waiting on for two years. And so the fact that uh, the immediate ratings hit for ESPN uh, for the first two episodes airing on ESPN and ESPN2 uh, were simply wonderful from a rating standpoint for the worldwide leader. What'd you notice?
1: this was just such a shrewd business move from ESPN to move the documentary up. It was supposed to have a launch date of June, and they moved it up to April, given the fact, again, that we didn't have the content to watch and they knew everyone was desperate for this. And so very smart move for ESPN to do that. I'm with you, Jax. The 30 for 30 documentaries are just incredible. I mean, everyone loves these. They get really high ratings, um, the the other 30 for 30 episodes. Um, so ESPN reported that two of their biggest record setting 30 for 30s, uh, where you don't know Bo. Um, at 3.6 uh, million viewers, mm-hmm. and then I felt like everybody tuned in. I, I know I did for the one on OJ Made in America, which that one was very popular, and it brought in 3.4 million viewers, and at the time, those were huge ratings for those particular 30 for 30s, but when The Last Dance uh, aired just, what, a week or so ago, 6.1 million viewers on average across ESPN and ESPN2 Uh, Episode one had 6.3 million uh, viewers and then episode two uh, 5.8 and it just blew the other two out of the water and those were highly rated episodes to begin with. So everyone was desperate for the content and they certainly tuned in and it was another incredible documentary by ESPN, but I think we all expected that.
3: The most watched program on ESPN since the college football playoff national championship
1: hello right i mean that puts it that puts it into perspective right there
3: yeah we're looking forward to uh the episodes that are coming down we'll keep tracking uh to see how they do uh it doesn't surprise us that uh uh, the the leading local markets (laughs) would be chicago and north carolina right (laughs) like it's just it's hilarious i mean the places where jordan spent the bulk of his life, uh, obviously professionally in Chicago, North Carolina is where he grew up and, and owns a team. So right. uh, that not surprising. he got Chicago, Raleigh, Durham, Norfolk, uh, Charlotte, and, and Greensboro. Greensboro always gets in there on a basketball rating, don't they? Of course they, they do. Of
1: course so. they do. That's It's just like, uh, you know, Birmingham, Alabama is like always the high, <laughs> highest rated market watching football. No surprise.
3: At all. All right, let's uh, change gears. And move toward our next topic, and this one is uh, super sexy. Let's just be real honest. All right, we got a little local bias on this one, as uh, the focus of the story, Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez happen to live in our town, so that's awesome, right? And uh, according to reports, come on, Mets fans, you you've been wanting new ownership, uh, and you thought you had it, and now uh, there's some investigation. Uh, for from Alex Rodriguez and his fiancee, Jennifer Lopez, as uh, they have uh, retained the financial services of J.P. Morgan Chase to raise capital funds for a bid to purchase the Mets. I, I didn't see this coming, but why not? They are um, wealthy, <laughs> and even more so together. Uh, they're going to need a boatload more cash, and I'm sure um, – There's great advice that uh, A Rod's getting from his uh, championship buddy, who used to play to his left there when he was in New York, Derek Jeter.
1: Yeah, well, like you said, Jax, this is a sexy topic for a sexy podcast, so it just fits (laughs) right in our wheelhouse, man. That's right. Um, Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all with this because uh, Alex Rodriguez was quoted as saying, if the uh, Mets became available again if this initial bid fell through. Um, uh, I believe his name is uh, Steve Cohen, the initial uh, hedge fund billionaire that was looking at purchasing the Mets. Right. Uh, that, that bid kind of fell through. And Alex Rodriguez made it clear that if that didn't work, that he was interested. And here we are. What I find fascinating about these
2: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
1: You know, the most highly paid Major League Baseball player, J Lo, actress, singer, celebrity, one of the biggest celebrities worldwide. You can both of their wealth and you get $700 million, which, don't get me wrong, that's a lot of money. <laughs> but that is peanuts when you're talking about buying sports teams. So, Team owners are are these multi-multi-billionaires. They've amassed all of their wealth, typically in some other industry, and they buy these sports teams, quite frankly, as like a side hustle, you know? So A-Rod and J-Lo, if they go into this deal, uh, the Mets are said to be valued right now at $2.6 billion dollars. The previous bid was for around that amount. The new bid would likely be the same. But they would be looking at just buying a very small minority stake. And just like Derek Jeter needed to come in with a big, you know, billionaire partner, a heavy hitter to be able to make the purchase, he's only 4% vested in uh, in the Marlins. Alex Rodriguez and j would be looking to do the same thing. So, yes, they're interested, but they have to find a real deal um, owner that can come in and help them make this happen.
3: Well, we're going to keep an eye on this one, and Mets fans will let him hear it because, remember, before he signed with the Yankees, it looked like he was going to be a Met. <laughs> and and he, <laughs> he went with the other squad. You know, Met fans, they are sensitive. About that ball club in the Bronx, man. So
1: let me tell you man. what: as soon as somebody signs your paycheck, a lot of those rivalries go right away. They're just speaking someone who's, you know, graduated from Florida and Miami signs my paychecks. You move <laughs> over to the dark side real quick. So I think I think uh, A Rod will be just fine. It'll be interesting to see how the uh, Yankees fans handle that.
3: Next topic. The United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and their plans to make these budget cuts. You're going to have to get us through uh, a lot of this dynamic. Obviously, things are uh, difficult. Um, you're talking about a situation that right now has the 2020 game set for 2021. Um, man, oh man, if, if that isn't enough of an issue, Um, particularly if it's canceled entirely, which I know know it remains a possibility, but I I don't think that's where we're headed with it. But the 2024 Paris games, uh, they're already starting to look that far ahead and say, hey, we need to bring these budgets back. Why so? And what are we talking about from a cut standpoint?
1: Well, like you said, Jax, I don't think there's anything off the table at this point in terms of what gets canceled in the future. You know, we were all really optimistic at the beginning of this, but I think now the realism has hit and um, we there would be no surprise, I don't think at this point, if the Olympics got canceled again, hopefully that's not the case, Mm -hmm. but looking ahead. Um, the USOC has already started to announce their budget cuts and they're pretty significant. So um, the USOC or the USOPC, if you include Paralympic Games, mm-hmm. um, but our, our national committee, they typically operate on a $1 billion budget. Well, they just announced uh, within the last week that they're going to head uh, go ahead and make their budget cuts, which are going to be around 20 Percent, so a two hundred million dollar budget cut um, to their budget, which would go through the twenty twenty four Paris Games. So they're going to have to find two hundred million dollars to cut between now and then. Mm. the The real interesting thing here, Jax, is they've already made cuts. So. Uh, The USOC chief executive, Sarah Hirschland, she's already taken a 20% pay cut. Her executives have taken a 10% pay cut, which you and I in our past podcasts have talked about all the leagues are are doing this. So now the Olympics are announcing these. So they've already cut their executives pay. Now they've got to cut 20% of their billion dollar budget out. They've made the statement that the cuts will not come from the NGBs. They will not come uh, from the national governing bodies. So things like USA Track and Field or USA Swimming, they they won't let the cuts happen to the national governing bodies. And in an essence, that protects the athletes. So the question then is, if your executives have already taken cuts. You're not going to pull back from your governing bodies and your athletes because they're already in trouble. The athletes are – some of them are not getting paid from their sponsors. Mm -hmm. They've got to find some other place to pull $200 million off the table. That's going to be tough.
3: The thing that's interesting to me is this caveat that the committees have extended to their partners, this option to extend – uh, until after the games in 2021 at no charge. I mean, I heard about make goods, but this this is another deal here, right? I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's to, to make sure that relationships stay stable, but that's not obviously going to generate any revenue. So is that basically saving the money for now uh, and, and worry about tomorrow, tomorrow?
1: Exactly. That's that's what they're doing. They're essentially saying, okay, well, you know, we'll just go ahead and and maybe tack on this year at the end of the – contract but but still the sponsors aren't getting any exposure right now um and the the build-up to the olympics the two or three months before the olympics takes place which is right when the coronavirus and the shutdown hit right when they were about to ramp up their global activation plans it all shut down so they missed that um you can't really activate right now. I know you've replanned the Olympics for next summer, but you can't do anything at this point. And I think, like you said, the Olympics next summer are, they're rescheduled, but everything's a question mark. So these, these sponsors and these advertisers have paid billions of dollars and they're, not doing anything right now they're not reaching anyone and then also the athletes are not able to do anything for their sponsors and they may be losing some of their money which is what these athletes use for their travel and training and so it's just a really tough situation and seeing the USOC cut 200 million uh, means it's a very dire situation
3: topic number five coming up so therefore we high five and I take care of it because we're not side by side okay. Which means
1: it, which means it's not as great, you know.
3: It isn't, but it isn't even close. Even close. But uh, I'm here for us. And uh, before you become an Olympian, uh, your family tends to travel around the nation, feeding into a 19 billion dollar industry, which leads us to our final topic. As we sit right now, Wendy, I would have been, as we tape this, in Atlanta. At the first of at least four, possibly five travel basketball tournaments uh, this spring and summer.
1: Yeah, all you're of, the GM. You're the GM of a team, right? The,
3: the president, GM, and founder of Jack's Fam Basketball. The commish. And and this is our last season. This is our final season because all of our kids are uh, seventeen and under, uh, and that's the final year before uh, you head to college.
1: Oh, that's awful.
3: And so. While the growth of travel teams and regional and national events have grown into this ridiculous business, I just noted nearly $20 billion business, uh, you've got these complexes, you've got these leagues, you've got these tournaments that are all on pause right now. They've lost March and April. And for the foreseeable future, I don't know what's going to happen because all of these entities have to wait on the recruiting calendar to be reset by the NCAA. And they can't do that until we know what kind of society uh, we're going to live in and how we're going to live in it. Doc, what, you know, what what a mess we have here.
1: This is, I think, a trickle down effect that people have not been talking about. I think this is one that's simmering under the surface and I'm glad we're talking about it, Jax, because yes, this all affects professional sport. And that's what you and I are always talking about. And But this has a trickle down effect all the way to high school sports and, and youth sports, kids at every level. So we were about to enter summer where travel sports are at their peak, like you just talked about, you're, you're knee deep in it as well. Mm-hmm. But these These travel sports are not only vital to the kids, but I don't think people realize youth sport in this country has become a 19 or almost $20 billion industry because – Family summers and their vacations revolve around these trips. Families pack up, they go to these kind of small, sometimes rural towns, but they camp out for a week, and they play games every day, and they go to movies, or they go to the local water park, Um, they go to restaurants, they stay in hotels, and there are small bedroom communities all across this country that have built- mega complexes just for youth sport state and national competition and we're talking about little small communities like Gatlinburg with 4,100 people and they say that in the summer hundreds of thousands of families descend upon these towns and spend money and it impacts their community up to 75, 80, 100 million dollars of economic impact throughout the summer because of these hundreds of thousands of visitors coming in on a multi weekend basis every month to play youth sport.
3: St. Louis, Missouri, I see you. I mean, even in the heart of the pandemic, they recognize all the wonderful impact that you just described that could be coming to their space as their Convention and Visitors Commission approved a $6 million uh, hotel tax that's going to bring in cash to front a plan to turn a nearly dead mall into a youth sports complex. So they're still dug in, even though that business is basically closed until further notice. uh, They realize what they're going to be able to turn that thing into. Uh, it's, It's draining money now, I'm sure, just to keep it open. It will be printing money uh, in the next year to eighteen months.
1: Yeah, these these smaller communities, Jacks, have actually. There have been HBO has done documentaries on this multi-billion-dollar youth sport movement in our country. That's that's being driven by competitive travel sport. Mm -hmm. And they've talked about the fact that these small communities and municipalities have created entire economic development plans based around creating these youth sport complexes, either for competition or training. And the entire plan is driven by bringing in families for competitions all year long but obviously the summer months are huge and when school gets out from the time it gets out till it's you know back again in August those 3 months are really uh, their tourist season because of travel sports. And with that not taking place this year, it's going to really hurt smaller communities who have made this, um, you know, their, the economic heartbeat of the city.
3: And as we noted with St. Louis, as it is around the country, a lot of these facilities are publicly funded. And so they go back into the bottom line in your city. So just because you don't have a kid in this space, don't think that it doesn't impact you. Some of the services... In your own town, might end up having to be cut because of how much money, how much revenue, uh, probably only short to property tax that some of these facilities uh, bring in to these uh, cities and counties.
1: One hundred percent. It's like it, it, in Miami, tourism drives our community, and Good. it does it because of you know the beaches and and the nightlife and all of that. But for these communities, their tourism now is one hundred percent tied in to youth travel sports and when people cannot travel, I mean, just imagine how it would be in Miami if, if we couldn't have anyone come into the county for months at a time, um, it would be devastating.
3: I refuse, I refuse and I look forward to solutions by smart people, doctors only please when you're taking advice on how to handle these situations. All right, I'm not naming names, I'm just saying. Focus people. Fauci forever. That's what I say. yeah.
1: Don't don't get all hopped up on Lysol now. Keep oh, here.
3: see, I was trying to be subtle. Trying to be subtle. But you, yeah, that's my, you don't have to be. You're a teacher of the truth. That's the way it goes. A professor of knowledge. That's, we we that's only it. we
1: only talk facts here on this podcast, Jax
3: <laughs> That's Dr. D's. I'm Jason Jackson. That's gonna do it for this edition. But always remember, mind your business.